Andre Waters, Mike Webster, Terry Long, what did they have in common? Did they go back to play too soon? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Cantu. Dr. Cantu is the Chief of Neurosurgery and Director of Sports Medicine at Emerson Hospital in Concord, Massachusetts, and Co-Director of the Neurological Sports Injury Center at Boston Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is the Medical Director of the National Center for Catastrophic Sports Injury Research and past president of the American College of Sports Medicine. Today we are discussing when is it safe to return to play after a concussion. Greetings, Dr. Cantu. I appreciate your taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thanks, Bill. Happy to be here. I had the pleasure of reading your article, Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy in the National Football League, which appeared in the August 2007 issue of Neurosurgery. What did you learn, and will it change our approach to management? Well, I think the important thing is that those were four former NFL players who all had abnormal tau protein deposition in their brains when studied with special histochemical staining techniques. They all had, in other words, traumatic encephalopathy. That was felt to be why they suffered from the triad of depression, cognitive impairment, and irrational and labile emotional behavior toward the end of their life. And it was felt that they all had these traumatic changes from their years of playing football, especially professional football. For the sake of our audience, what exactly goes on when you get a concussion? What happens to the brain? Well, the word concussion comes from the Latin word concussus, which means to violently shake. And that's a pretty good analogy of what actually is happening. The, the brain is being violently shaken within the cranium. And as a result of that, there is a transient alteration of function both within nerve cells as well as within communication between nerve cells. And in most situations, it's a biologic disruption in which the cells in the nerve fiber tracts are not actually torn, but they can return to function if no further crisis happens. What's the best way to grade the severity of the concussion? I think the best way to grade a severity of concussion is, first of all, don't grade it at the time it happens. Wait for all the symptoms to have cleared and then think about how many symptoms occurred, how severe they were, and how long they lasted. And then based upon that, I think that's the most prudent way to determine the severity of a concussion. Now, parents are always asking me, I'm a pediatrician, Doc, what would you do if it was your kid? When can my kid get back in the game? Is there any kind of a benchmark grading scale or any evidence-based validated return-to-play guidelines? Well, we've got an evidence-based return-to-play guideline that has been out for a number of years but none of them are double-blinded type guidelines, so that all of them, to a certain extent, take into consideration consensus literature and and one's own personal experiences. But where all the consensus statements, whether they be Prague or Vienna or the NADA guidelines or the American College of Sports Medicine team physician statement, where they all agree is that no athlete symptomatic from a concussion should be going back into the same contest or even play again until all symptoms have first cleared at rest, and then have cleared at exertion. So they should be exercised on the sideline as well? They should. If they're asymptomatic at rest, they should be exercised on the sideline if you're thinking about letting them go back into the same contest. What's the standard assessment procedure? A child or an athlete gets, you know, has a bell rung, as they say, on the field, comes out dazed. What's the steps that you should go through in terms of evaluating this child? Sure. A very quick mini neurologic exam involving cranial nerve, motor sensory 
and reflex function is always worth doing, but the big bang for your buck is in the cognitive area and in balance area in terms of immediately after concussion. So they should be tested with a Romberg test, tandem gait, stance with eyes open and closed, and single leg stance with eyes open and closed. If they pass all the balance, then the cognitive is the most important in terms of whether they have any anterograde or retrograde amnesia, whether they remember the play, whether they remember the circumstances around the hit, whether they remember the score, the color of the jerseys of the opponent, things like that to really make sure their orientation is perfectly correct. And if there's any doubt at all, the saying that is out there and and is correct is if in doubt, sit them out. That sounds like good advice. You think the coaches follow that? Uh, Not too frequently. Should each team have some kind of a pregame checklist? I mean, you mentioned a whole lot of steps to evaluate the athlete prior to letting them go back into play. Pilots have checklists, I guess. Is this something that each team should have? Well, the person that's doing the assessment absolutely must have a post-concussion checklist with them. There are 25 different signs and symptoms that really have to be looked for and questioned. And if you don't specifically look for and ask about each of the 25, you don't know whether they're there or not. If all the symptoms have resolved, are there any absolute contraindications to returning to play that day? Generally speaking, the absolute contraindications are that anybody who's been rendered unconscious, and it's definitely documented that they've been unconscious, should not go back into the contest. Anybody that's had anterograde or retrograde amnesia symptoms that have lasted more than 20 or 30 minutes should not be considered for going back into the contest. And in fact, generally speaking, anybody that has had any post-concussion symptoms that last for more than 30 minutes should not be going back into the same contest. So those are the absolute contraindications. Are there any controversial areas that are going to create some perhaps conflict on the sidelines? Well, I think the most controversial area is the symptom of headache, which is the most common of all symptoms following the concussion. And it may not even be a symptom of concussion. Headache can be because the helmet fits too tight, because somebody has got something going on with their cervical spine and and the symptoms are radiating up the back of the head. So not every headache is a post-concussion headache. That's probably the one that's most controversial. If you think the symptoms are due to concussion, definitely sit the individual out. If you don't, then you may, in selected instances, let somebody play with a headache. I mean, some of these athletes get some pretty severe head injuries. I mean, if a child comes into the emergency room with pretty much loss of consciousness from any event, it's sort of a no-brainer, no pun intended, that they get CT scanned. What's the role of imaging in concussions, and what are the indications for it? Well, the indications are obviously the same as in that situation in the emergency department. You don't want to miss an evolving intracranial hematoma. The imaging is not really going to help you manage your concussion, but the image will help you not ever miss an evolving subdural or epidural hematoma. So certainly those individuals that have worsening symptoms, declining level of consciousness, or increasing headache, all of them should be scanned. The group of individuals who at the end of the contest are still quite symptomatic, the prudent thing to do is to send them off for medical clearance, not allow them to just go home. Neuropsychological testing, what's its role and when should it be done? Neuropsychological testing is very useful, but I think it's very important that people realize that it's only one piece of the puzzle. It cannot be used as a red light, green light. And most of us in the field feel that it should be used as the final test. In other words, When all the symptoms are gone, 
when the individual has a normal neurologic exam, that's the time to do the neuropsychological testing. And, of course, you hope you've got a baseline because if you don't, it's not nearly as reliable. Now, if all signs and symptoms had cleared and the neuropsychological test shows a deviation from the baseline, would you let that athlete go back into playing? I wouldn't. I'd retest the athlete a week later or some days later. So you really have to be completely normal on all parameters to go back to play. Yes, I think if you're going to use neuropsychological testing, the best place to use it is after all the other things would suggest it's a green light, and then you're just doing one test on top of it, which, by the way, doesn't rely on the individual reporting things, but how they perform uh, from a cognitive standpoint only, of course. But nonetheless, if they don't perform up to their baseline, then obviously they're not ready to go. If you could make one rule change, what would it be? With regard to concussion in general, yeah, I think the simplistic rule change for me would be that anybody who has post-concussion symptoms for more than 10 or 15 minutes, just sit them out of that contest. The safe thing to do, especially for the scholar-athlete, is to just take no chances, and that's especially true at the junior high, high school level. The NFL made some changes in the way they're approaching concussions recently. Were you involved in that process, and what do you think of the changes they've made? Well, I've been, I was involved in two levels. I spoke twice at their invitation at the Chicago meeting, and then I subsequently worked with Jeff Posh, the legal counsel for the NFL, in terms of their return-to-play guidelines, and in specific, putting out the guideline that if any NFL player is unconscious, they can't return to that contest. I think it's a great start. It certainly has got a long ways to go. It's still being left up to the individual teams to make the final determination, and that's probably correct because the individual teams own the players, own the franchises, and so on. But I think it's only a start. I think it can be, the guidelines can be expanded, but it's a good start. Is there anything that really bugs you the most about the way coaches and trainers treat their athletes? I think what bugs me the most, and this is not any knock on football coaches, but in this country, you have to show absolutely zero qualification to be a coach at any level, other than perhaps winning. In other words, coaches don't have to demonstrate that they have any knowledge about head injuries or what's safe or not safe about returning to an athlete after a head injury or any other part. You go to many countries around the world, and coaches are certified, just like athletic trainers and other people. And I think it would be a huge step forward if some certification process were put in place for coaches, especially coaches that are being paid to be holding that position. I think that's great advice, and maybe physicians in the area who serve as school physicians can encourage their school boards, at least at the high school level, to require some real training of their coaches. One state in this country has done that, one state so far, and that's Texas, but it took a tragic death to a high school football player to get Will's bill put in place, and that bill does mandate uh, training for all athletic trainers and coaches that are handling football athletes. Is there any reading you would recommend for doctors serving as team physicians? I think the American College of Sports Medicine has uh, a good book that they put out some years ago uh, for team physicians, and I think their guidelines on concussion that they put out in 2006 are good reading for anyone who's going to serve as a team physician. A scary form of concussion is the convulsive concussion. Is there any special precautions that should be taken, any 
different management? Well, number one, keep your hand out of their mouth. Um, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is it is very frightening to see because people go into tonic posturing, and it looks awful, but it's a brainstem reaction and almost always doesn't carry any more consequence than even our minor concussions. Certainly all these people need to come out of the athletic contest, need to be evaluated, but fortunately it's not epilepsy. It doesn't correlate with post-traumatic seizures, and it doesn't even correlate with a severe post-concussion syndrome in most cases. So there's no further long-term consequence, no greater risk of long-term consequences? No, it's a frightening thing to witness, but it's a brainstem reaction and doesn't have any cognitive implications. I'd like to thank Dr. Robert Cantu, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing when is it safe to return to play following a concussion. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. I leave you with this bit of advice previously mentioned. When in doubt, sit it out. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I wish you good day and good health.